Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Midpoint. My guest today is a little bit different. He spent his 20s in prison having been wrongly convicted of murder. He then spent 12 years proving a miscarriage of justice before being released at the age of 32. So what happens when 12 years of your life are stolen? How do you stop yourself spending the rest of your days bitter and angry? Well, Raphael Rowe's answer was to become a top journalist and broadcaster with a hit Netflix series. At 54, he's thriving and surviving and a lesson in acceptance and how to move on if ever there was one. Raphael, thank you so much for coming on Midpoint. How do I find you today? Are you well? I am well, actually. It's been a challenging weekend, actually, because I dropped my 18-year-old son to university. So it was a kind of first goodbye for him and us. And so that's been quite draining emotionally, as exciting as it is to see your kids go off to university, not prison or or somewhere more <laughs> dreadful. We're but, going to start right there. Let's yeah. start right there. Yeah, you know, they can go in different directions. So it's a very proud moment for us to see him. I took him up to Manchester. He couldn't wait to get rid of us, to be honest. And it must throw up for you, particularly all sorts of emotions as well, when you look back on your life and kind of the younger version of you, which is where we're going to start, if it's OK. Sure. And I want you to tell us a potted version, really, of how you ended up in prison for a crime you didn't commit. Well, talking about my son being 18, I remember leaving home when I was 18 and going into that wicked wild world, if you like, of independence. And it wasn't long after that that I found myself being arrested, charged for a murder and a series of robberies that I didn't commit. And at the age of 20, I was in Brixton Prison. The prison I went to was a, a maximum security prison inside a prison. So it wasn't just a prison. It was a prison inside a prison where they house some of the countries and international sort of notorious criminals, including the craze, the Richardsons, notorious gangsters, as well as Colombian drug cartel bosses. That kind of stuff mm. is what I was experiencing at 20. But I spent 18 months in that prison on remand and then I was wrongly convicted of the murder and the series of robberies that I was charged with. I was then destined to spend the rest of my life in prison for a crime I didn't commit and it took me 12 long years to have my conviction eventually overturned. So by the age of 32, my convictions were overturned and I was released. So that is a very brief 12 years from the age of 20 to 32 of my life fighting to have my convictions overturned whilst I was in maximum security prisons here in the United Kingdom. What was Raphael, the 18-year-old, you talk about your son, what was that kid like? What were his hopes and dreams at 18? I like to think that at that age, I was a happy-go-lucky, just enjoying the freedom of being a teenager, not really knowing what I wanted to do, what I could do, what I was capable of doing. I had no real ambitions. I had no mentors in my life. I didn't have anybody to guide me in the right direction or the wrong direction for that matter. I just sort of made it up as I went along and I was kind of caught up in this whirlwind of 18, 19 year old, happy-go-lucky living my life and doing things that you do as a teenager. I had my, my brushes with the law. I wasn't an angel by any stretch of the imagination, but I didn't have a job, I wasn't working, I wasn't doing anything that that I would aspire my kids to do or try and mentor other kids to do. So I was kind of lost, but enjoying that lostness because I had no real responsibilities beyond looking after myself as we all do at that age. You know, I didn't have anybody to follow into university or education to sort of try and carve a career out in terms of my academics or in terms of the workplace, I didn't have any ambitions to become anything or, or anybody, if I'm honest. And I don't see that as a negative. It's just mm. not the life that I led. And so I was destined to sort of end up doing something spectacular or not at all. 
when you find yourself in prison, first of all, you're 18 months, as you say, in a prison within a prison, and then you get handed this sentence for something you didn't do. I mean, you, you said there you had a few brushes with the law, but you were not a murderer. Did you immediately have that sense of fight or was there any part of you that was beaten down by that system of feeling resigned to a life behind bars? I don't think initially. I think when I was first arrested, I, I was kind of quite, I wouldn't say cocky, but I was quite confident when I was arrested and being interrogated by the police and knowing that I hadn't done that. There was a resilience in me building from that moment on by me answering the questions. You know, I wasn't one of those who sat in a police station in those initial days saying no comment or trying to hide behind a solicitor's advice. No, I was very forthright in saying I didn't do it. I wasn't there. I wasn't involved from the beginning until the end. And that's where my fight, I think, began because I was so, so angry by what they were accusing me of, taking me away from my whirlwind of doing nothing and being accused of crimes I didn't commit, I think that's where almost overnight I turned from this happy-go-lucky 18, 19, 20-year-old to this young man who was determined not to allow them to get away with it. I didn't quite articulate it like that when I was Mm. 20 years old, but I knew that something terribly wrong was being done to me. I was not that person before, I must admit. You know, I didn't have that in me before. I mean, I was quite independent, I was quite strong-minded, But I had no sense of the criminal justice system. I had no sense of the destiny that I was about to sort of journey on. But there was definitely, definitely something lit within me from that moment on that endured me throughout the 12 years that I was in prison for sure. Because it's interesting, isn't it? You talk about not having mentors and not having kind of an example of somebody gone to university. And yet suddenly when you're thrown into that situation, you presumably then had to just go, right, okay. Who do I need to speak to? What do I need to read? And and so all that information had to kind of start within you. You know, you had to kind of work out the journey yourself. When you're in prison, because I've got no idea, right? I've never been in prison. Who do you turn to? Like, you know, because the, the TV and the film kind of versions of a prison don't necessarily scream with people kind of being kind and, you know, um, saying, here, come here, young man. Let me mm-hmm. give you some advice. You know, so who do you physically turn to in the first instance? Do, do you know what? You, you don't. You sort of discover it. I mean, I started to mimic, if you like, the people that were around me. So the barristers and the solicitors, they were doing something on my behalf, but it just wasn't good enough. They wasn't sort of working on my behalf so I was listening to them and hearing what they were doing and trying to understand why it is that they were doing what they were doing then I tried to mimic that by trying to do it a little bit better by asking them to do things on my behalf go and look for witnesses go and find the evidence look at the documents and then because I felt they weren't doing it in that period that I was held on remand in that prison within a prison I was banged up in a cell for 23 hours a day and the only thing I had around me over a period of that time was the documentation that was coming in in dribs and drabs. And so I spent the majority of my time, if not all of those 23 hours behind that door, reading the documents and cross-referencing statements and information. So I started to turn to myself. But it took you such a long time. How did you keep yourself motivated and keep that belief going? In between looking at the documents, I do you know, in-cell press-ups, I do in-cell sit-ups, I do all the sort of physical exercise that I could to keep my body physically able and that allowed my mind to become stronger and it would give me the power, if you like, or the resilience to keep on going. And there were times when it was really challenging, especially when I was reading stuff that just wasn't true and I couldn't do anything about it. There were also moments where... There were little chinks of light where I thought, this is it, this is it, we found it, this is what it is that's going to help us. But year after year, you know, after I was convicted, after I was sent to the maximum security prisons here in the UK, it was just the kind of inner hope, I suppose. Hope is probably a key word for me because it was by keeping myself physically fit, I kept my mind healthy. And by keeping my body healthy and my mind healthy, there was this ongoing fire within me, which I deemed hope and perversely because it's not where you want to be learning lessons about life right your your life is now going on such a different track to that kind of happy-go-lucky 18 19 year old and 
eventually you would become an investigative journalist. Did that seed get planted while you were in there? No, I think in all the years that I was in prison, I didn't have the space to think about anything other than having my convictions overturned. At the time that I was wrongly convicted, there was a a lot of publicity around my case and it, I think, played a significant role in my wrongful conviction. So I was thinking at this point in my imprisonment that if I could get journalists to write stories that said, maybe this guy is innocent and I would stand a chance. So I embarked on a journalism correspondence course. Unfortunately, I didn't finish the course because as an A-category prisoner, I was often moved from not just cell to cell every few weeks, but also prisons and my paperwork wouldn't come with me. My correspondence course wouldn't come with me. But I suppose if there was one moment, it was that moment when I started to write letters to The Guardian or to other broadcasters or national newspapers trying to get references to my case when I talked about issues to do with the law. And I didn't at that point think I was going to come out and become a journalist, not by any stretch of the imagination. I specifically studied journalism to try and get journalists to write stories about my case. And it worked. Ultimately, you feel that was the the missing ingredient almost, that connection with journalists was the thing that started to change things. I think so, because if I had journalists question my convictions in their platforms, on their platforms, it means more people would become aware of the fight that I was fighting. And it did work. And it was because the journalists started to write articles, you know, big spreads in newspapers, questioning the safety of my convictions, that I knew I had the attention of the courts. And the courts ultimately are the ones who make the decision about whether or not your conviction is going to be overturned. I wouldn't say that the journalists persuaded any courts in any way, but it did make them pay more attention. Tell us what it's like when you finally get that taste of freedom after you've been wrongfully imprisoned. I think in the 12 years that I was inside, I built up this kind of emotionless survival mechanism where I I couldn't cry, I couldn't show any emotion, I had to be tough in order to survive in such a tough environment. And I suppose when I eventually got my case referred back to the Court of Appeal in the year 2000 and we were now at the Court of Appeal and the judges gave an indication that our convictions were unsafe and there was a real sense that my convictions were quashed. And I walked out of the court and I walked out of the door and my family, my sister who had been an advent campaigner on my behalf, I fell into their arms and cried for the first time. So for 12 years, I held back all this emotion and I was able to release it. And it was as if two things had happened. One, I'd won back my freedom, but I'd also released myself of this chip, of this anger, of this bitterness. In that moment, do you think you managed to do that? Without a shadow of a doubt. I wouldn't have been able to go on and become the journalist that I became if I would have carried... The, the stress and the strains and the struggles mm. and the pain and the suffering that I'd suffered in prison, that kept me alive in prison, feeling that pain and that anger, that fire I talked about lighting when I first got wrongly convicted. And I was able to put it out when I walked out of the Court of Appeal. The fire almost flickered away. And that was the moment for me where my life changed dramatically. To be able to do that is remarkable because... People carry bitterness and anger with them through life for a lot less than having their freedom taken away for 12 years. And, you know, you've been completely within your rights to feel angry for a little bit longer. Did you feel the need to speak to anybody? How does it work? When you've been wrongly imprisoned, is there this kind of government department that swoops in and says, hey, mate, we're really sorry. Here's a week at the Ritz, right? We're going to give you a nice big lump sum. We've got some counsellors here for you. Please tell me there's some kind of like, you know, uh, decompression process that they offer I you. wish there was, Gabby, but there isn't. What happened next? The taxi, going to a hotel, going to a flat, no apology from the government, no apology from the criminal justice system, no offer of any kind of counselling or anything. You are really left to your own devices. There did come a time when the Home Office offered us an interim payment and that would help cover the cost of any kind of counselling. That came eight, nine months after I'd been released. But by that time, I was already almost in a position of joining the BBC. So I left one institution, if you like, for another institution. (laughs) But... I didn't have the chance. I think I I took on a role at the BBC at the Today programme within less than 12 months of being released from prison. So my feet didn't quite leave the ground and I didn't 
take what I should have taken. I went from one institution to another. And and that was my therapy, working as a journalist, using the skills that I'd acquired as a meticulous researcher, investigator of my own wrongful conviction and applying that to my work as a BBC journalist at the very beginning. So no counselling for me. That was my therapy. What about trusting people, having relationships? And I don't just mean the romantic and sexual variety, but just being able to listen to somebody and take them for their word. How hard was that? I think it's still very difficult for me to do even now. I think I'd lost all trust in in anything and anybody. And even though I released those negatives when I walked out of the Court of Appeal, there were still mechanisms within me that just sort of I could not control. They just kicked in and became a stone wall in the face of people who loved me or cared about me or needed my trust and so things broke down quite quickly whether that is a relationship or or even just people that I worked with that became really really difficult and still is I mean it's got better over the years obviously I've had a very long relationship and things have got better but you know there are still moments as a high profile journalist you can't trust people so Mm. it has been challenging. But you trusted yourself enough to have children which is is amazing you know because you see so much wrong in the world when you're in prison and wrongly convicted of something I imagine that you know a lot of people would think well this this world's absolutely shit I'm not going to bring kids into it but you had enough hope in civilization and humanity to add to it do you know I'm not that kind of person where I blame the world or people I know who's responsible for what happened to me and those are the people that I would never forgive I don't have any forgiveness for for those people it's not a question for me I wanted to have children I wanted all these things when I was in prison I dreamed about having a relationship again you know having sex again I dreamed about having children and and the things that you do, the normal things that I didn't Mm. ever think I would be able to do again. And I didn't rush into it when I got out. I enjoyed myself for a short period of time, you know. Um, But I fell in love with the woman that I started a relationship with just before I went in prison. We were separated by my wrongful conviction. We had no connection for 12 years because she went off to university and lived her life and I fought my conviction from prison. But she was one of a handful of people that I wanted to say thank you to when I got out for not turning against me, not giving up on me because she was young. And I did that. I I reached out to her when I got out and it was as if I was 20 again and she was 17 again. And we started that relationship a couple of years later. We got married and we started having kids. <laughs> Which is amazing. I mean, that that in itself is incredible. The enduring love and commitment that you had to each other in spite of her going off and presumably living her life for 12 years. So, um, wow, that's a real kind of uh, a lovely romantic uh, twist to your tale, isn't it? That doesn't always work out, I think, because you got rid of your anger maybe on those steps and your bitterness on those steps. It's a difficult one because in the years that I was in prison, my life stood still. So when I got out at 32, I was still 20. And so I wanted to go back to that relationship that I had when I was 20. And and everything was like that at the beginning. It was as if we picked up from where we'd left off. But that's not the reality. You know, I was much older. I'd been through such a journey. I harboured lots of problems that she had to endure. But I was so excited by my freedom. I was so excited by living my life again. I'd forgotten all that. And it's only years, many years later that it starts to resurface. You know, the problems, the the grumpiness, the miserableness that you kind of develop because you're so upset by your experience. And so it did prove to be quite challenging at, at times, but I think mm. love overcomes many of those challenges. And it did for us, for, for sure. And then when the kids popped out, well, you could direct your love to them as I did and still do. It's interesting. You say you were like a 20 year old in some ways when you came out, but I imagine in other ways you were like a 50 year old because, you know, there's so many things that you would have as experiences that normal 20 somethings wouldn't have. So you're biologically, you're 32, I think, were you when you when you came out. How has that affected your midlife experience, do you think? Have you, do you still get excited about freedom and about simple things that might have impressed you when you first came out of prison? I still get excited by the things that I'm able to do because I, I know what it's like not to be able to do things. And when I talk about being able to do things, I'm talking about making choices. You know, there was a long period of my life where I couldn't make a choice. I couldn't decide 
where I wanted to go and when I wanted to, to go. I couldn't choose things like people take for granted going into supermarkets. So as you can imagine, in the first couple of years, I was in almost every aisle of every supermarket looking at all the different choices to anybody's disgruntment around me who just wanted to get the shopping done and move on. It's things like one example, and I use this example because I think it demonstrates how when you're in prison, guilty or not guilty, there are abilities and choices that are taken away. And I, when I first came out of prison, found some things really difficult. Sleeping in a bed with another person was really, really, really challenging for me for years because I'd slept in a single bed pushed up against the wall bolted to the floor for 12 years. So trying to get into a bed with with a woman or anybody was really challenging for me. And if I did, I couldn't sleep with them for the night. Reaching for the handle of a door, I'd been deprived of opening a door for myself for so many years. I'd lost the ability to do something as simple as that. And at first, I'd walk up to a door and I'd stand there instinctively, whether I was with someone or on my own, and they'd look at me kind of strange, like, oh, you're not opening the door. I could see them thinking that, and then it would kick in. Oh, I can open the door. But you lose those natural abilities, and I did. And I, I still think about those things today because these are the legacies of being locked up mm. in prison, guilty or not guilty. And it's just kind of come to mind as well that I imagine technology must have come on in leaps and bounds over that period of time. What was the most extraordinary thing that blew your mind when you first came out of prison in the technological world? Mobile phone. You went in without a mobile phone. When I went into prison in 1988, I think they just started circulating mobile phones, but they were these big brick things. Ginormous. Ginormous things with big antenna aerials. And in the back of that taxi where I was already disorientated, I was handed an old Nokia phone. And I'd never handled a a mobile phone. So being handed a mobile phone for the very first time in the back of the taxi and not knowing what to do with it, looking at this (laughs) device, it might seem, because we're used to it now, an obvious thing, but I just didn't know what to do with it. And my sisters and my mum, and they all kind of laughed at me and it was embarrassing, but there were continuous things like that over the next months and years as I got used to technology, (laughs) for sure. You refer to yourself as being a dreadlocked mixed race man Mm. at the BBC and there weren't many, if any, like you, certainly on Panorama when you worked on that team there. How do you think your presence affected them and how they viewed the world? I think I offered something different. You know, not only was I a mixed race, dreadlocked South Londoner, but I also still had the prison slang. So I was very different to everyone around me. You remember my career started at the Today programme. We're talking the Daily Mail and the Sun, questioning how very dare the BBC employ this person from prison to work alongside John Humphreys, Jim Nockerty and, and the you know prestigious journalist. The creme de la creme of... Uh... British journalism. As they like to think they are. But, you know, (laughs) I'd sat beside these guys and girls in the early part of my career, not even knowing how to turn a computer on, but I bluffed my way. And I didn't know whether they respected me or feared me. You know, here's this guy who's just spent 12 years in prison, became friends with the craze and things like that. And I don't think they did take to me initially, but I built up such a tough skin, it Mm. didn't matter. You know, and I saw it as many of my colleagues had the academic skills and I had the street skills. You know, I'd climb over the wall to get the evidence where they'd knock the door and we'd work very nicely together. But I was very different. You know, there was nobody Mm. like me, sounded like me or looked like me. So I'd like to think that I created history within the BBC. I opened doors for many who would not want to work at the BBC or feared working at the BBC because they were different. Mm. And somebody had to champion you to get in there in the first place. And then and then once you're there, I mean, it's that whole, if you can't see it, you can't be it thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And then once you're there, the, the doors can open for, for more people from a wider variety of backgrounds. I'm not saying everybody had to come out of prison, but, you know, different, different areas of life. Because you, you want to hear the panoply of, of experiences, don't you? And I don't just want to hear from the same universities, the same kind of people from the same places. And I guess your speciality was always going to be miscarriages of justice. Did you feel drawn to 
to look at those stories if there was something that you felt needed investigation? I think social justice was more my driving force. I think being able to give a voice to the voiceless, and I know that's slightly cliche, but that's who I was. That's what I embarked on. It was about telling stories from the point of view where people were not being given that platform or given that opportunity. And I think that's what my career was about at first, getting into places that other journalists just couldn't get into. And you talk about, you know, there being that one person who opened the door. For me at the time, it was the editor, Rod Lidow of the Today programme. And I'll give you the quick background. I was going on a tour um, of Five Live, one of the many journalists that I'd met in the years that I was in prison had invited me to the BBC for a tour. And it was on that tour at the old television centre at Five Live. I think Kerry Thomas was the editor at the time. Five Live was quite new at the time. And we went out the back of the television centre where the editor of the Today programme, Rod Liddell, was with a number of his colleagues. And we started a conversation. And there and then he asked me if I wanted to come and join the Today programme. I didn't even really know what the Today programme was. I'd heard it on my medium wave radio in prison because that's all I had at the time. And the guy next to me who was giving me the tour sort of elbowed me and sort of said, do you realise the opportunity you're being asked here or given here? And I'm like, no. And he said, you've got to accept. A couple of weeks later, Rod Liddell, true to himself, sent me a few emails asking me to come to the Today programme And I turned up in the same suit that I walked out of the Court of Appeal in, thinking that was the look. And everybody was in ragged jeans and T-shirts. And that was a big lesson for me and the message I've given to many of my colleagues over the years. The only way you will make it is to be true to yourself, because I wasn't true to myself on my first day at the Today programme when I'd signed that three-month contract trying to be the suit that I thought the BBC was. To be fair to you, Raphael, you probably went into prison in a world where people were more likely to wear suits on the Today programme and you came out into a much more relaxed kind of society, didn't you? So um, I'm sure there were a few other things. And your background as well, because you mentioned it before. If you haven't got a mentor that's showing you the way and how you do these things, how are you supposed to know? You need mentors. I know that's something that you feel very passionate about now, that the young 18-year-old Raphael might have uh, had more mentors in his life, perhaps. I think it would have made a difference, and I know it makes a difference today. I mean, with social media, kids of any age can see so many different things and they can take inspiration from those things. And I try to push out those kind of messages where I can, that you can be whatever you want to be within reason, you know, depending Mm. on what resources you have and and who's around you, inspiring you or giving you the right advice and guidance and just watching people, yourself on television, myself Mm. on television, people who don't think they can aspire to those roles can aspire to those roles with the right will and determination. And I've met many people in my time at the BBC, for example, who came in who sounded different. They come from regional, you know, Liverpool accent or a Mancunian mm. accent, and they'd be black and they'd be overweight and they just didn't fit in. And I would say to him, but that's the beauty of who you are. You're different. Use that opportunity to show that you are different because if you try to conform, you won't achieve what you want to achieve. And and that's what I've done for many years, or at least when I was at the BBC, for sure. Great advice. And I wonder as well, having that prison experience, when you looked around, I know a lot of the time you were looking down at documents when you were on your own, but when you saw the prison system and people who were in there, repeat offenders and people who kind of, you know, just couldn't break the cycle, how that view of mentorship and example and the possibility of change, I wonder how your opinions on that might have been formulated or have changed while you're in prison. Yeah, it's it's a tricky one because I'm not the sort of person who advocates that, you know, we should just induce rehabilitation into prisons because people's problems come long before they they end up in prison you know social economical problems and I know again that's all cliche but it's so true and I'm you know a a product of that you know when you grow up I grew up in a deprived council estate in Camberwell in South East London nobody had aspirations everybody was of working class But that's not to say, you know, 90, 99% of the people that grew up in the same environment I did didn't go on to commit crimes or end up in prison or anything like that. There is a small percentage. But I know that when there is somebody putting an arm around you or showing you the way that you can change your life, and that's what I advocate, that if you can mentor, support 
or help just one individual, why wouldn't you? Because nobody mm. wants to become the next victim of the person that is released from prison. And so if we can do something mm. to give that person an opportunity in life, I think it can make a difference to that individual. I really do. Stay with me. We'll be back after this. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Does prison work? Prison only works. It's like when we're driving down the road and it's pouring with rain and we hit a bridge and we go under the bridge and the rain stops hitting the windscreen and then we come out the other side. The longer that bridge is, the less rain hits the car. And I think it's the same with prison. If you don't do something with somebody who ends up in prison to change their life, then they will come out. So prison only works in stopping that individual who is a repeat offender, let's say a burglar, who continuously burgles people's house to support their drug habits. So there's an underlying problem there, mm-hmm. and that's the drug habit. So we need to address mm-hmm. their drug use. Prison only works to contain people. I don't think, and I've been to prisons, as you know, in my series for Netflix, all over the world, and the problem is always the same and that is not enough resources are put into what we really want to achieve and that is to prevent Mm. people coming out and committing further crimes there just isn't enough being done it's so 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 often isn't it the early interventions that we're told we can't afford whether it's seven or eight year olds being given extra academic support because of things like dyslexia or whether it's things like youth clubs and all those things which cost actually very little at that point will cost a lot more if you've got to keep that person later down the line incarcerated for 10 years. And also that person's life is going to be so much better, you know. So you look at kind of like, I think it's 75% of young offenders have got learning issues. That feels like it's an obvious kind of situation that we need to address earlier, isn't it? Like sort help them with their learning issues. That, that's important, but it's also for me, you know, media can play an important role because it's about the narrative change. It's about not saying that people are bad and they just need to be sent to prison. It's about changing the message. Politicians are terrified to sort of say the right thing and do the right thing, even though they know it's the right thing because they're mm. going to get negative publicity which could have an effect on their ability to do what it is that they want to do in their Mm. career and I think that's what's key it's about the narrative change and that's what I've been doing for the last four years trying to change the narrative and I'm very proud to say that the response I get from viewers of the shows that I make about prisons is that they didn't really realize what it was really like and it makes Mm. me scratch my head and think well why why don't you? So your professional life right now is as you put it got yourself free of another institution. Uh, <laughs> and and actually, we're kind of joking about it, but it, that must feel like genuine autonomy then because you perhaps needed to be in some kind of framework when you come out of prison. I think it would be very hard to just go and be a, a self-employed person in any industry. Do you enjoy that world outside the BBC professionally a lot more then? Has it given you a great sense of satisfaction? The first thing I would say is, you know, the BBC was a lifeline for me. You know, when I came out of prison, it gave me purpose. It gave me direction it gave me a chance a chance that we've just talked about you know if you don't give people a chance where do they go so meeting Rod Liddell being offered the opportunity to work at the Today programme and then launching BBC Three becoming a correspondent or an investigative journalist for Panorama now we're talking about the most prestigious programmes mm. at the BBC little old me with dreadlocks brown skin ex-prisoner da 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 but I mm. paved a way not just for myself but for other people so At the point that they closed the door on the correspondence at Panorama and I took redundancy or was kind of told to leave or go to the pool of, you know... You didn't want to be a staffer? Yeah, I didn't want to do that. I mean, I was a staff reporter for the BBC for 16, 17 years and then to sort of go back down into the belly of the beast, if you like, a sort of pooled reporter who worked on various different programmes just wasn't for me because I was into long-term journalism. So leaving the BBC is challenging and as sad as it was because I'd been there for so long and I'd given sweat and blood for the BBC, I didn't know what to expect, but I really landed on my feet because walking out of the door of the BBC, Netflix came knocking at my door 
and a new door open, new opportunities open. And yeah, you're right. There is this sense of freedom where you pick and choose what you want to do. Whereas a freelance journalist, I can inject my personality into the work that I do. I can show emotion. I can be reactive. I can have opinion. And for me, that is probably something that came far too late in my career. Well, you know, this is about dog and human years and you're probably still only in your kind of like, I don't know, mid thirties in your career, <laughs> yeah. aren't you? So, uh, um, and we started off this whole podcast talking about dropping your son off at university, but that's a big wake up call, I think, for friends who, who are doing that this last week or so. I mean, I feel wrenched for them and the empty nest is a real thing, isn't it? And finding your kids flying away. But it's also a celebration. As I said, you know, it's better he's going to university than a police station (laughs) kind of thing. And I I kind of do feel for the parents and the families who are having to face the challenges that my parents faced when I was 18 Mm. years old. So I recognise that as sad as it can be, you know, they'll be back. They'll be back after a few years looking for more food and clothes in their bedrooms. So I see it more as a celebration. I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, for the last 18 years, I've given my sweat and blood to mould my son, if you like, into the young man that he's turning out to be. And he said something to me the other day. He said, when I'm questioning him about, you know, the the, the temptations of university, but I never went to university, although I did a, a, a criminology degree in my late 40s, so I kind of caught up. But, you know, my message to him is, you know, follow your instinct, whatever your instinct tells you to do. And he said something to me that reminded me that I... He had been listening in all those 18 years when you think they're not. And he sort of said, look, Dad, I've got a bit of you and I've got a bit of mum in me. So I'm going to be absolutely fine because I've got the best of two different personalities. And we do have two very different personalities. And so that made me think, actually, he's going to do okay. So I think the only difference is that for the last 18 years are under your roof. It's your rules. Now they're free they've got to make their own rules. And we as parents have to fit into who they are and what they like and what they want. And that's... Yeah, but you know that more than anybody because you lived under a whole load of rules, didn't you, for 12 years and had to make your own rules up, presumably, when you came out. I did, and it got me in a lot of trouble. It got me, (laughs) especially when I was in prison. As I say, I was punished continuously for not conforming, but that's the character I was. I mean, the person I am today is not the person I was in prison. You would not have liked to have crossed my path when I was in prison because I was very volatile. I was, I wouldn't say violent, but I would stand up for myself and I took no from the prison guards or prisoners. You had to though, presumably. I did and it was a, it was a tough persona, but I like to think that some of my personality character, streetwise me and, you know, my career as a journalist, you know, I started my career very late in the day, 32, mm. joining the Today programme, people looking at me like, who very dairy, where did he come from? You know, he can't even speak English and that's what I was up against. So I like to send out that message that, you know, let's celebrate the achievements that you make. And I'm still making achievements. You know, I've done more in the last two years in my 50s than I did throughout my career. You know, I've achieved so much and and you can. And more and more, I'm sure, because as I said, you've kind of got more miles on the clock to go, if you like, than the average 54-year-old, haven't you? It's true, but there's the other side, isn't it? The other side is, you know, you work so hard, there's got to come a point where you've got to enjoy what you've earned. And I don't just mean financially, I mean the freedom to be the person that you are because you dedicate so much of your time. I have dedicated so much of my time. I I made certain rules. I remember the first documentary I made for the BBC and I was in a van travelling along the motorway as you do, stopping at a service station and the cameraman talked about not being at his son's birthday and his daughter's and I made a, a sort of rule that I would never miss any of my children's birthdays. I would always be home for Christmas, New Year's, all the special moments. I would always be there for the first performance at school. And I stuck to that. That was a rule because I know deep down what it's like Mm. to have not for one moment thought that I would have those privileges and so I would not give them up for anything. Well, you had to learn the hard way. You know, a lot of parents, it takes them time doesn't it to get that balance so you weren't the right to insist on that from the very beginning and uh, thank you so much it's been uh, really inspiring hearing your story and for a lot of people I think your grit tenacity and your ability to let go actually of of any bitterness and anger will maybe be the kind of key learning so I think people do hold on to stuff don't they that can cost them And I think that is the takeaway, isn't it? I mean, we all have, I had my experience and it shaped the person I am without a shadow of a doubt. People often ask me, you know, if you could 
wind back the time, would you have preferred not to have gone to prison? Of course I would not to have, you know, the things I saw and the experiences I went through in prison, notwithstanding the miscarriage itself. But the fact of the matter is I would not be the man I am today. I've not gone down the journey, not been able to be the journalist that I am, not been able to do the programmes and the work that I've done or have the conversations and meet the people. But the truth is we all have our own trials and tribulations, whatever it is, whatever happens in your life, but you do have to let go. You don't have to forgive if your trauma was caused by somebody else. You don't have to forgive. You can live with that. And I respect that. But I think the moment you can let go, you can move forward. Hence the reason I've been able to move forward and continue moving forward. You will have your drawbacks. Of course, you will have your drawbacks, but it should never stop you. It should propel you. Raphael, that's a beautiful way to end our chat. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me on, Gabby. Nice to meet you. Well, I love chatting to Raphael. I found him so inspiring. So today we have an episode with a difference. We haven't really got an expert today. Instead, I wanted to look a little bit more into what we touched on there in our chat about prison and the job it does in preparing prisoners for a life beyond the gates. I've always been a fan and interested in the Timpson family. They are, of course, the nationwide shoe repairers and key cutters. You probably find them in your local supermarket or on the high street. And since about 2002, 10% of their workforce have been ex-prisoners. They actively go and recruit from prisons. So when I heard about Redemption Roasters, who are onto something similar, I knew I had to have them on. Hello, Ted. How are you? I'm well, Gabby. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Thank you so much for coming on. I was chatting to Raphael Rowe about what prison can do to prepare people for life on the outside better and uh, potentially give them a job, give them some kind of stability, give them a purpose. Um, Redemption Roasters, from what I've read, seem to be cracking that nut. Tell me a little bit about what you do and how it came to be. Yes. So my business partner and I initially were running just a standard wholesale coffee company. And we very by chance met a representative from the MOJ who was looking to contract a company to do some coffee training in prisons at a trade show event. That's the Ministry of Justice, obviously. Yeah, Correct. Yeah. Rep from the Ministry of Justice. Yeah. Exactly. And they essentially asked if we were interested in bidding for a contract like that. And we said, well, yes, possibly. But when we went away and thought about it, we thought that it would be a lot more interesting uh, to actually start a, co- a whole coffee company, which was based in a prison and had its whole ethos around rehabilitation of offenders uh, through coffee. And we thought this would be a really interesting brand, which people would, would get behind and also be able to do some great work. So how do you go about doing that? How easy is it to set up a business in prison? In summary, not easy. Our first roastery was in Aylesbury Prison, which is a young offenders institute. And just getting a roastery in there is, is tough. There are complications with logistics, as you can probably imagine. And the space was fairly compromised. Um, And Aylesbury Prison was also going through quite a difficult stage in its history at that point and was about to enter special measures, which is essentially what happens if a prison is failing to meet its obligations. So we had a great time at Aylesbury, but not without its challenges. And now we've moved to a larger facility at the Mount just because we outgrew the old one. So was the interest from you purely kind of from a business perspective, a way of of creating a brand? Or did you previously have an interest in in prison reform or prisoners uh, having opportunity? Or was it just a perfect confluence? I have to say it was fairly, uh, it was a fairly fortunate uh, set of circumstances which came together. I haven't ever been in prison myself, neither has my my business partner. Um, And I, I can't say that I woke up one morning and said, oh, you know, this would be a really great idea. But I think certainly more generally, we know that uh, businesses really need to have a purpose these days in order to differentiate themselves, or at least that's one of the key ways to differentiate yourself. So Max, my business partner and I, were always looking for uh, a way to, to do something more interesting and more differentiated with, with a company that we could have some real impact doing. So you teach the prisoners how to roast. So they're making the coffee in prison. And then do they come out and work in your coffee shops? Yeah, so there's a few different paths they have to come to us. One would be that, that they work in the the roastery at HMP The Mount. They learn exactly how to uh, work in a roastery there. And then if they leave, either they can come and work with us or they can go and work in a roastery elsewhere. We've had uh, only small numbers of successes in the latter path. 
But we do at the moment have 20% of our retail staff, which are the sharp the staff that work in our shops from some sort of beneficiary background. But the second path, which is more common, is that they train in one of our other prison barista academies, which is where people learn barista skills in essentially sort of small cafes, simulated cafes in classrooms in prisons. Uh, we also have an outside training centre doing similar things with people referred to us by the job centre who are deemed at risk of entering crime. And do you have statistics yet to show how successful they are then in assimilating back into society, not reoffending? We do. And actually, I probably should have had that in front of me. But uh, I was actually given a stat a few weeks ago, which was comparing our beneficiary group to the country and how much more successful we were at keeping people employed after they'd left prison. And we were very much more successful at it. And why do you think that is? Why do you think the prisoners are so engaged with roasting coffee and working as a barista? What have you noticed anecdotally about it? Good question. I think one is that the traditional classroom environment has, either they have failed in it or it has failed them. You could uh, put it any way you like. So learning a more vocational skill like this, I think is a, is a good pathway for them to take. The second is, is that actually getting engagement on it is, is quite easy because it's seen as different and, and interesting. But I think more than anything else, just giving somebody a job out of prison is one of the most important determinants as to why they stay out of prison. And having a purpose in prison means that normal life is simulated better in prison. And that makes them more able to be prepared to come out. And I mean, if you look, for example, um, at the Norwegian prison system, you know, that's the kind of thing that they focus on, uh, simulating the outside environment as much as possible. And, you know, there's, there's, there's various ways in which they do that. But at high level, I believe that's why they get much more successful outcomes than, than we do in this country. I was going to say, do you know if their rates of reoffending and re-entry into prison then are lower than ours? They're a lot lower. So in the UK, uh, 60% of people are reconvicted again within two years of release. In Norway, it's 20%. Wow. So that's enormous, isn't it? And as far as you know, are you the only business that's actually inside prisons at the moment with a link to what you do outside? No, there are quite a few, actually. Very few that have, uh, let's say, as, as an explicit a link as us or Timpsons. But no, there are other businesses that work uh, inside prisons. I mean, for example, in the Next Door Workshop, there's a business called Rough Stuff and they make furniture and People buy that from the outside. It's manufactured in the prison in the mount and, and is shipped out to them. There will be some people listening. And I remember watching a documentary about the prison system in America, which is completely different, obviously. And, and you know, there are accusations of very cheap labour, prisoners being paid a dollar an hour to make mailbags, that kind of thing. There's no risk of exploitation here, is there, from these businesses? Because obviously your, your labour is captive and isn't being paid as much as it would be on the outside. Yeah, I mean, look, that is obviously an easy an, an easy narrative for people to, to take. But uh, I, I would say if they did have concerns over this, I mean, they can go and visit. You know, it's not actually that difficult. Um, people have often said, to, uh, often said this to us. And we're like, well, sure, come along and have a look. Speak to them. Because whenever you speak to anybody who's been through either our system or the system of companies like Timpsons, etc., you know, what, what would they rather be doing? Mm. Would they rather be sitting in their cell doing nothing or, as you say, sewing mailbags? Uh, or would they rather be in a workshop learning a valuable skill with a link to a company who can give them a job on the outside? I mean, these, these, these accusations do come sort of from the tabloid press. They do not come from the individuals concerned. Uh, it's quite interesting that these, these views are quite widespread. I mean, B Corp, for example, which is an organisation that you, you may know about, at the moment, we're having trouble getting accredited by them because technically we are deemed to, quote unquote, use prison labour. Now we turn around and said, that's precisely the reason we're applying. You need to think this about this again, but it's a complication. How do your customers in your shops feel about it? And do they give you any feedback as to why they're using your brand in particular? Is it because they want to support what you're doing or they just love your coffee? I mean, I think, you know, we can't kid ourselves too much in that uh, the number one reason why people report going to a coffee shop, uh, according to the Allegra figures, are either the coffee or the location. Um, and things like social impact tend to feature slightly lower in the list, but that's, you know, to be expected. We actually haven't yet had a sort of bulletproof survey of how many people in our shops are actually aware of what we're doing would be would be interesting to know but not a very data-driven answer for you but our engagement on instagram and on socials 
you know, is very strong around that and partly motivated by the fact that that's what we talk about very strongly on those channels. But yes, we do get a lot of uh, a lot of engagement from them. And has it increased your interest in what goes on in prison and prison reform and whether prison works? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I was painfully ignorant, I think, of, of these issues before I even started in this world. Similarly to coffee, actually, I didn't really drink coffee before I started uh, in the industry. Um, but no, absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, the more you learn about it, I mean, I, I appeared in front of um, one of the parliamentary committees on a white paper on prison education last year. And that led me uh, to do a lot of in-depth research, actually partly on the Norwegian system. If we think that we, we care about the outcomes of the prison system uh, rather than simply pandering to the red tops, then, you know, a, a new approach is needed. And uh, it's certainly become something that, you know, I would be very, very keen to see and I'd be very keen to have a voice to, to try to change. And that's what our company's trying to do. What's the longest anybody has kind of stayed with you after they've come out and carried on working with Redemption Roasters so far? Good question. I would need to get a certain answer on that, but my, I think two years. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? And then gone on to carry on working with coffee or just found their feet and gone on to do something completely different? So uh, one has left and uh, went to go and be a roaster at another company and uh, still in, in, in post. And uh, others have gone on to work for other coffee companies, but others have gone to do completely different things as well. We're fairly flexible, as in if people want to go and do other things, we don't care. I mean, it doesn't have to be in coffee. But you're giving them a, you're giving them a chance and a, and a step outside, aren't you? So I guess, you know, you kind of have to let them have their wings and fly. So, um... I mean, you know, we basically want them to become economic actors in their own right, whether that's with us or elsewhere. Keep doing what you do. Thank you very much for coming on and telling us all about it. Thank you, Gabby. Thank you very much to Ted from Redemption Roasters for telling us all about what they do. And of course, to the remarkable Raphael Rowe, whose battle for freedom was an extraordinary example of human spirit. But perhaps even more incredible is the way he's living such a positive life now without any bitterness, which could have been so debilitating. How can you move forward if you're always carrying the past along with you? Well, Raph certainly isn't. Thank you also to Rethink Audio for producing and of course to you for listening. I'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.